trials usually begin with a few guarantees that it will be speedy, impartial, and ruled on by a jury of peers. But even when the rule of the law is followed to a T, the end result of a trial can sometimes throw everyone for a loop. Today, we'll walk you through some crazy court cases that ended in acquittal, even though all of the evidence seemed to point in the other direction. That definitely applies to the cases at the top slots on our list, including a case that has become known as the trial of the century. Hey, all you weirdos, welcome to Crime Countdown, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Ash. And I'm Elena. Every week, we'll highlight 10 fascinating stories of history's most engaging and unsettling crimes, all picked by the Parcast Research Gods. This episode, we're counting down the top 10 astonishing acquittals. Acquittals can be an amazing thing, or they can be the worst thing in the entire world. Yeah. And I think we've all seen our fair share of both. But the worst part is that it's completely out of our hands. So when it goes wrong, it feels completely helpless. You're like, I can't do anything. This person just gets to leave. That's the thing. And it's like, you just don't know what to do with yourself. Yeah. You're like, I'm just angry. I'm upset. Like Casey Anthony is the first one that comes to my mind that I remember seeing and just feeling so helpless and so infuriated. That's such a good way to describe it as helpless because you're like, I cannot do anything, but I know that this is wrong. Yeah. I also always think of Lizzie Borden and then more recently R. Kelly. Oh, yeah. One of those acquittals I'm not so sure about. Like, I I don't know if Lizzie did it or not. I don't know if she should have been let go or not. That one's a hard one. It's hard. I can't decide. R. Kelly, straight to jail. Yeah, yeah. One hundred. I feel the exact same way about both of those. Lizzie, I'm always... On the fence. I guess... Yeah, it's I like you know. see you see how her life turned out afterwards. Like you know, she like donated to a bunch of animal charities and she was stuff. Just and you're chilling like, out. she didn't murder anybody after that. So mm. maybe I don't know. Who knows? But R. Kelly, bye bye. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what? There's also the obvious O.J. Simpson of it all hanging around. Of course there is. Yeah, maybe he'll even uh, appear somewhere on the list. I figured. But you gotta sit tight for now because that's how this whole thing works. Elena's got five astonishing acquittals and so do I, but neither of us knows what the other is bringing to the countdown. Let's start the countdown. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. 10. I'll start us off with number 10, Edward Moybridge. Photographer Edward Moybridge shot and killed a man he thought was having an affair with his wife. This much we know for fact, but the jury in Edward's case seemed to abandon all principles of law to let him off the hook. Interesting. In 1872, Edward married Flora Stone, who was 22 years younger than him. Flora gave birth to a son in April of 1874. While Edward was traveling for work, Flora reportedly began an affair with Harry Larkins. 
Edward became suspicious that his son was not actually his and was fathered by Harry. Ooh, scandalous. Very scandalous. He found letters between his wife and Harry, including one where she sent a picture of her new baby and wrote Little Harry on the back. Oh. Uh, uh, suspicious. Yeah, yeah. Either way you cut that, that's suspicious. Yeah, I don't know I was, about that one. I was trying to work it out for Flora there, but it didn't really work. <laughs> it's all looking great. In October of 1874, Edward shot and killed Harry Larkins. Overreaction, I will say. Yeah, one might say. He was arrested and tried for the murder in 1875. His lawyers entered a plea of insanity, but then changed their defense to justifiable homicide. A wild, a wild defense. A During, wild defense, <laughs> truly. Yeah. During the trial, his lawyer focused on the disgrace of Flora's affair. In closing arguments, they stated that there is, quote, no statute in such cases permitting a man to slay his injurer, but that, quote, every fiber of a man's frame impels him to instant vengeance. I love that it's like, well, he's a guy and he got mad. So that's <laughs> he's, just what he felt like he had to do. He's an angry guy doing dude things. Come on. Come on, bro. Just, <laughs> just guys being dudes. Yeah, just angry dudes. The jury found Edward not guilty. They were like, yeah, I get it. Probably because back then juries could only be only all men. Only be guys. Yeah. So they were like, guys doing angry bro things, man. They're like, I've done that before. Yeah. According to an article from 1875, the jury said their verdict was not in line with any laws. It was, quote, with the law of human nature. So not the law of the court in which you were brought into to determine whether he was guilty or not. An interesting perspective to take in a court of law. Yeah, we're not that, talking. We're actually not at the court of human nature yeah, today. That's the thing. Maybe next week. If we were in the court of human nature. By all means. Like in the court of like a Madonna album. That's great. Yes. If we were there. Sure. We're in the court of law. I don't know what to tell you. Like, yeah, that's you gotta unfortunately... Go, gotta go by the laws. You're bound to the law here. After the trial, Flora passed away and her child was put in an orphanage. Edward went on to capture a series of photos of horses running at a gallop. They showed for the first time that at one point while running, horses' hooves are all off the ground at the same time. Isn't that interesting? How fun. <laughs> that's really fun. How fun after he murdered it's that man. Fun that Edward can show us that horses fly. These photos are credited by many as being what led to the invention of the movie projector. A pretty big invention, for sure. And it's very cool to know that horses literally fly at times. Like, that's... <laughs> thank you for showing me that there is a Pegasus <laughs> actually living amongst us. Do they fly or do they, like, jump? They, they fly. Because all my feet can leave the ground for a minute, too, but I don't think that means I'm and flying. You, just, you fly for a second. I don't know about that. I'm just saying. All I'm saying is that, like, it kind of stinks that Edward contributed that after doing something kind of heinous. Contributed two really cool things after one incredibly uncool thing. It's a little tainted. Yeah, very uncool. Yeah. Nine. At number nine is Robert Blake. Robert Blake is an Emmy Award-winning actor best known for playing one of the murderers in the screen adaptation of Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. But in the year 2001, his wife was murdered, and all signs seemed to point to him. Robert had a child with Bonnie Lee Bakley in June of 2000. The couple wed shortly after that. Bonnie and Robert were a quirky couple from the get-go. Bonnie had been married nine times before Robert. 
She originally claimed that her child was fathered by the son of actor Marlon Brando, although later testing showed that it was Robert's. On May 4, 2001, Robert and Bonnie went to dinner in Los Angeles. They finished, they left the restaurant, and started walking to the car. Robert realized that he had left his pistol, which he was legally carrying, at the restaurant and went back to get it. We we, we covered this case <laughs> yeah. on Morbid recently, and I'm just like, who leaves a gun in a restaurant? How did it just <laughs> slip the, out of your pocket? That's the thing that like we really just could not wrap our brain around. We were like, you just left it? And how would you not realize that that wasn't in your pocket anymore? Like, that's heavy one yeah. way or the other. I don't care how big or small it is. We had a lot of listeners afterwards confirm for us. They were like, no, I am, like, actually a gun owner. And I can tell you with 100% that you would not, not like, walk out of a restaurant not knowing that you don't have your gun on you. Yeah, it, <laughs> like, that wouldn't happen. It was real weird. Yeah. Now, he reportedly told police that when he came back, he found Bonnie with a gunshot to her head in the front seat of the car. Police found the gun used to kill Bonnie in a dumpster nearby, but the serial number had been filed off. In April the following year, Robert was arrested and charged with first-degree murder, two counts of solicitation of murder, and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. He pleaded not guilty. During the trial in 2005, two former stuntmen claimed that Robert recruited them to kill Bonnie. Lawyers played a tape of a conversation between Robert and Bonnie, where he accused her of having promised to get an abortion. She didn't. After a months-long trial on March 16, 2005, the jury acquitted Robert for Bonnie's murder. The jury foreman said prosecutors couldn't put the gun in Robert's hand. But in November of that year, Robert was found liable in a civil trial of, quote, intentionally causing Bonnie's death. Although he still claimed he was innocent, he was forced to pay $30 million to Bonnie's children. That's a wild case. That case has a lot of twists and turns, and to be honest, I'm not fully sold either way if he did it or no, not. No, I'm not either. There's a lot of other possibilities that are good possibilities, and I just don't know. I just don't know. Eight. Number eight on our countdown of astonishing acquittals is Oscar Pistorius. As a double amputee sprinter who represented South Africa in the 2012 London Olympics, Oscar Pistorius inspired many. But then he shot his girlfriend after apparently mistaking her for an intruder. His trial was an Olympic-level media circus, ending with a shocking acquittal of premeditated murder. He was convicted of culpable homicide, then of murder in an appeal. For now, we're going to focus on the first acquittal. Oscar was in a relationship with model and law school graduate Riva Steenkamp. Late on the night of Valentine's Day in 2013, Oscar heard noise in his bathroom and thought there was an intruder. Thinking Riva was still in the bed with him, he grabbed a gun and fired four shots into the bathroom. The intruder turned out to be Riva, who died from the bullet wounds. Oscar was arrested and charged with her murder. During the trial, the defense argued that Oscar acted out of fear and wanting to protect himself. The judge in the case was criticized for a few things. A neighbor of Oscar's testified that she heard a woman's screams the night of the shooting. The judge dismissed her testimony by saying she was an unreliable witness. A text message that Riva sent to Oscar saying sometimes he scared her 
was also thrown out by the judge and not allowed to be entered as evidence. That's always so interesting to me when a judge will look at something that screams, hello, I'm a red flag. And they're just like, eh, can't use it. Nope. And it's like not admissible. If the victim herself is saying to the perpetrator, sometimes you scare me. Right. Before she was shot by the perpetrator. Why is that being? That's the thing. What? In the end, the judge ruled that Oscar was not guilty of premeditated murder, but he was found guilty of the lesser charge of culpable homicide, the equivalent of involuntary manslaughter, and sentenced to five years in prison. I don't know about don't that. Don't love that one. Yeah, this, <laughs> is l- love it. this is a little hairy. I don't like the things that were thrown out here at all. He served 10 months in prison before being released to house arrest. Sounds like he, like, might know someone. Yeah. You know? In 2015, an appeals court changed the verdict. He was found guilty of the higher charge of murder and sentenced to six years in prison. Uh, Six. Six six years in prison for murdering a human. Okay. Like, one, two, three, four, five, six. That's how many years. Okay. Prosecutors appealed the sentence, saying it was too light. He was then sentenced to an additional 15 years minus time served. I am fully convinced that he had a couple contacts who were helping him out here because this is asinine. It is a hairy case all the way around. None of it makes sense. No. And it's crazy because it involves somebody who like inspired so many people that then to see this happen. Yeah. I think a lot of people had trouble seeing it for what it was or what it could be. A fall from grace. Exactly. At number seven this week is William Kennedy Smith. With a last name like Kennedy, William, a nephew of President John F. Kennedy, was destined for greatness and controversy. In 1991, the recent medical school graduate found himself caught in a he said, she said assault case. With the Kennedy's family and estate behind him, William was acquitted in a trial that was broadcast across the country. On the night of March 29, 1991, 30-year-old William Kennedy Smith went out with his uncle, Senator Ted Kennedy, and a cousin. They ended up at a nightclub in Palm Beach, where William connected with a woman. She went back with him to the Kennedy estate. William and the woman went for a walk on the beach. The woman claimed that he tackled and raped her during that walk. But William said that he had consensual sex with her. He was charged with felony sexual battery and misdemeanor battery. The trial was held in December of 1991, and it was truly a media circus. Obviously, he's a Kennedy. Of course. It was broadcast nationally to millions of viewers. Prosecutors faced an uphill battle, though, from the start of the trial. The judge barred them from presenting testimony from three women who claimed that William had sexually assaulted them. That's what I'm like, hello, judge, what? Again, why? (laughs) William took the stand and said that the sex was consensual. Several witnesses said they saw the accuser back in the Kennedy estate after the alleged rape had happened. The woman's bruises were presented as evidence, but the defense argued they could be from anywhere. On December 11th, after deliberating for just 77 minutes, the jury acquitted William. And an interesting fact, William's lead defense attorney went on to marry one of the jurors in the case. Okay, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Can you you try to hide it? Like, can we even try to hide it that this was completely fixed from the beginning? Oh, and guess what? 
In 2004, a Chicago woman who worked with William filed a civil lawsuit accusing him of sexual assault, but a judge dismissed the suit. If it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Yeah, you can put lipstick on a pig, but guess what it is? Still a pig, like you, William. (laughs) Still William. (laughs) Wow. Six. Also on our list at number six is Lorena Bobbitt. The case of Lorena Bobbitt versus her husband, John Bobbitt, also has elements of he said, she said. We all know the infamous crime that occurred. Lorena took a knife and cut off her husband, John's penis. In the end, the jury sided with Lorena. Lorena claimed that John became abusive towards her shortly after their wedding in 1989, when he allegedly punched her for the first time. John maintains that he was never physically violent with Lorena. In the early hours of June 23, 1993, Lorena said that John came home drunk and raped her. John denied the rape and said there was no sex between the pair that night. After the alleged assault, Lorena went to the kitchen for a glass of water. She took a knife on the counter, went into her bedroom, and cut John's penis off. She fled the house with the penis and threw it out the window of her car as she drove. Lorena was arrested and charged with malicious wounding. I didn't even know that was a charge. Neither did I. Before the trial over the wounding began, there was a trial against John over charges of marital sexual assault. He was acquitted on November 11, 1993. A few months later, Lorena's trial began. Her defense called witnesses who testified that they saw bruises on Lorena's arms and neck. Witnesses testified that John had boasted to his friends about forcing Lorena to have sex, and she had called 911 about alleged domestic abuse more than once. On January 21, 1994, Lorena was found not guilty of malicious wounding by reason of temporary insanity. She was sent to a psychiatric ward for 45 days, but was released and deemed not a threat. She filed for divorce from John several months after the trial ended. I'm surprised it took several months. I know. Maybe it was just the craziness of everything going on. Since the trial, John has been arrested and served time for violence against two different women. He denies all of these allegations. In 1997, Lorena was charged with assaulting her mother, but then acquitted by a judge. John went on to appear in several pornographic films. Lorena turned down $1 million to pose for Playboy. This case is like the messiest case ever. That's the thing. I think everybody in this case did something wrong. Yeah. And I think that... Two messy, messy people married. Yeah. And a lot more messy, messy, messiness happened. Yeah. And no one really is right at all. And who am I to say? I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I knew Lorena was going to be on the list. I knew it. Yeah, I I knew she was going to be there for sure. I was surprised like when I was going through my side of the list, though. A Kennedy. A Kennedy? A Kennedy. Who would have thought? So shocking. We're New Englanders. That's crazy. (laughs) Nuts. We we would never see that coming. No, never. (laughs) You know what? There's two that I am literally positive that you have. Okay. (laughs) Because I don't have them. I'm sure that... And You're if right. you don't, then I'm going to have a bone to pick with the podcast research gods. But yeah. 
I feel like they're gonna, they know. I bleed the fifth a lot on this show and I'm not stopping now. All right, I'm ready. My next one though is one of my cases that I find the most interesting. Ooh, I'm, I'm ready for it. Hi, listeners, it's Vanessa. On behalf of ParCast, I'd like to thank you for your continued support. Your loyalty has allowed us to keep expanding even beyond podcasts. That's why I'm so thrilled to share some special news with you all, something we've never done before and made possible only because of you. On July 12th, we're releasing our first book titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. And you can pre-order it today at parcast.com cults. Those of you who've been with ParCast since the beginning know that it's a labor of love for us to bring you these powerful stories. As long as you keep listening, we keep creating. So with the benefit of years of research and insights, we've put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. You won't want to miss this book. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them. That's parcast.com slash cults. Thank you again for listening. We can't wait for you to dive in. Five. All right, let's jump back in with number five on our countdown of astonishing acquittals. Starting off the second half of our list is Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. In 1921, Fatty Arbuckle was at the height of his career as a star actor in silent films. He had netted $3 million from Paramount Pictures and recently signed a contract for another million. But then a murder trial destroyed his career. In 1921, Arbuckle was at a Labor Day party at a hotel in San Francisco. A 25-year-old woman named Virginia Rappe arrived at the party, and the two connected over drinks. What happened next landed Arbuckle in court. Virginia was found vomiting in the bathroom. Partygoers assumed that she was drunk, so they put her up in a room in the hotel and they called for a doctor. But it turns out that her bladder had ruptured. She died in a hospital a few days after the party. Arbuckle was the last one seen with her before she got violently ill. Police arrested him and initially charged him with murder. It was later downgraded to a charge of manslaughter. His lawyers insisted he was innocent. During the trial, Arbuckle's lawyers showed evidence that Rape had a chronic bladder condition. In addition, her autopsy showed no marks of violence or a struggle. The main witness for the prosecution was Maude Delmont, who was at the party. She said she heard screaming from a room where Virginia and Arbuckle were. When she opened the door, Virginia was allegedly on the bed moaning. But Maude was a less than stellar witness. She turned out to be a madam who procured young women to attend parties with wealthy men. In the past, male party attendees had been accused of rape and blackmailed into paying Maude. The evidence that sealed the deal was a telegram Maude sent to several attorneys that said, quote, we have Roscoe Arbuckle in a hole here. Chance to make some money out of him. Wow. What a horrible person. It's <laughs> like really terrible. Arbuckle went through three trials over the manslaughter charges. The jury couldn't reach a consensus in the first two. 
In the third trial, having spent close to $700,000 on his defense, Arbuckle allowed his lawyers to bring character witnesses in to speak about Virginia's allegedly promiscuous past. He previously wouldn't allow it, apparently out of respect for the dead. Arbuckle was acquitted on April 12, 1922, but the trial destroyed his career and he became unhirable in Hollywood. He died at age 46 from a heart attack, a little over 10 years after the trial. Wow, that one's a crazy one. It's so sad. Yeah, you just don't know what to think about all that. Yeah, you really don't. Four. Landing at number four this week is R. Kelly. Knew it. Yep. In 2008, R&B superstar R. Kelly was taken to court on charges of child pornography after a tape was found that was allegedly of him and an underage girl engaged in sexual acts. The tape made its way around the world, and so did the trial that came after it. In 2002, a reporter with the Chicago Sun-Times anonymously received a 27-minute long video that was allegedly of R. Kelly in sexual acts with an underage girl. The tape was sent to the police. The singer was arrested and charged with 21 counts of child pornography. The trial began in 2008, six years after the charges had been brought. His legal team filed extensive motions that delayed the trial. Mm -hmm. The prosecution claimed that the girl in the tape was 14 years old at the time. She was allegedly introduced to R. Kelly by her aunt, who worked with him, and the singer became the girl's godparent. That's sickening. R. Kelly was identified in the video by a mole on his back that was visible in one frame. The defense suggested that the mole could have been added afterward in the video. Prosecutors face major issues from the start of the trial. The girl who was allegedly in the video refused to testify in the case. R. Kelly's lawyers made it seem like everyone involved was just trying to get money from him. No, although, just justice. Although 14 witnesses testified about the identity of the girl, the jury decided it was still inconclusive, somehow. 14 witnesses, yeah. and you're like, eh, I don't, I don't know. know. R. Kelly was acquitted on all charges of child pornography. Like, the videotape literally, literally existed, right y'all. But his legal trouble didn't end there. Good. In 2017, BuzzFeed News published an investigative piece alleging that R. Kelly scouted and trapped girls in an abusive type of situation. He denied all the allegations. In 2019, the documentary Surviving R. Kelly laid out a long history of claims of sex abuse against this singer. Shortly after it aired, Kelly was charged in Illinois with 10 counts of aggravated criminal sex abuse. Prosecutors later filed an additional 11 charges of sexual assault and abuse, including those against a minor. Kelly pleaded not guilty. His trial is slated for late 2022. In 2021, he was convicted in New York federal court of racketeering, sexual exploitation of a child, and kidnapping. As of this recording, he is in jail awaiting sentencing. R. Kelly has asked for a new trial. Honestly, there are so many charges in this, it's hard to even understand which ones are happening. Because he is a disgusting piece of poop. He is vile. The things that... Did you watch Surviving R. Kelly? I watched some of it, yeah. The it things revealed in that documentary, I actually had to stop watching it. I don't think I finished it. He's a creature from the murky depths. Truly. Truly. The Black Lagoon. Yeah.
three. Number three on our countdown of astonishing acquittals is Casey Anthony, possibly one of the most recurring names on this show. Two-year-old Kaylee Anthony was last seen in June of 2008, but her mother Casey failed to report her missing for 31 days. During that time, she was seen partying and shopping. But when Casey went to court on murder charges, what seemed like it would be an open and shut case got very twisted. Which is ridiculous. Kaylee and Casey Anthony had been living in the home of Kaylee's grandparents, Cindy and George Anthony. After an alleged argument in June of 2008, Casey Anthony drove off with Kaylee. In July, Cindy found out that a car Casey had been using was impounded. George got the car and noticed an overpowering smell from the trunk. Cindy then called police to report Kaylee missing. When police inquired with Casey about her daughter, she told them that she was at the babysitter's apartment. The apartment that she led them to turned out to be vacant, though. Casey was then arrested and charged with child neglect, giving false statements, and obstruction. Later that year, Casey was charged with first-degree murder, aggravated child abuse, and four counts of providing false information to law enforcement. Before the trial started, Kaylee's body was found near the Anthony home. The body was decomposed and had duct tape all over the mouth and nose. It's just horrific. Truly. During the trial, prosecutors described Casey as wanting to live a carefree life without the burden of a small child. One piece of evidence to support this was a tattoo that she got shortly after Kaylee went missing. It said, Bella Vida, beautiful life. Can you imagine for one second? No. For one second. No, just no. Getting a tat, any tattoo while your child, your two-year-old, a baby, is missing. is missing. But getting a tattoo that says the beautiful life or beautiful life or whatever. It's like, is it really a beautiful life really? while you're miss- looking, quote-unquote, looking for your missing two-year-old? Truly, I mean, if that is not the most incriminating thing I've ever heard and the most callous. Oh, yeah. She is truly an evil, evil Thing walking among us. Very much so. While prosecutors alleged that Casey used chloroform on her daughter Ugh. and then duct tape to suffocate her, but there was no direct evidence, DNA or otherwise, that tied Casey to the body. The defense argued that Kaylee had accidentally drowned in the family pool and that Casey and her father George allegedly panicked and tried to cover it up. George testified that that version of events was false. And what sense does that make? It makes no sense. She drowned in the family pool, so you covered her mouth with duct tape and then disposed of her body in the woods? It makes zero sense. It's an accident. You would have called police in an right. ambulance to try to save her as well. You just assume she's dead? Right, like you don't know. No. But in a shocking twist in July of 2011, the jury found Casey Anthony not guilty of murder. <laughs> She was found guilty on four counts of lying to the police, sentenced to four years in prison, and fined $4,000. In 2013, a court of appeals reduced the four counts of lying to just two. Yeah, because why not, right? They were like, she was actually fibbing those other two times. So. Yeah, and like, who cares about Kaylee and justice for her, right? Seriously, like, apparently no one. That's what it seems like. (sighs) She was released from prison 10 days after the sentencing, on time previously served while awaiting trial. Casey Anthony 
to me is number one. Casey Anthony very much is number one. And the, just the fact that she is number three on this list, I'm like, she could be numbers one through 10 on this list. She could be every single list. Easily. I remember watching that and I remember there are very few times in my life I've been genuinely astonished and shocked and that acquittal. Oh, yeah. No one saw that coming. No, not no, at all. She didn't even see that coming. It was she wild. probably, I don't even know what she was thinking and I'm glad I don't, but <sighs> the fact that she's not number one should tell you, I guess. Yeah, the, the final two, I feel like they're going to be really rough. It's going to go someplace. All right, let's get into it. We're down to the final two spots on our countdown of astonishing acquittals. At number two is Lizzie Borden. On the morning of August 4th, 1892, Lizzie Borden's parents were hacked to death while in their Massachusetts home. Neighbors hadn't heard anything or seen anyone suspicious on the property. All signs pointed to Lizzie who appeared to be the only other person home. But this list isn't astonishing convictions. It's astonishing acquittals. Let's hear how Lizzie Borden got off. Let's. Lizzie was a 32-year-old Sunday school teacher who lived with her wealthy businessman father and stepmother. On August 4th, she alerted a neighbor that someone had killed her father. When police arrived, they found her father's body in the living room, which was splattered with blood. There was no sign of a break-in. They found the body of his wife upstairs in a guest room, killed in the same way. When police questioned Lizzie on her whereabouts, her answers were inconsistent. She said she had been in the family barn or out in the yard or picking pears. Police arrested Lizzie one week later and charged her with murdering her parents. But Lizzie now had access to her father's money, and she hired a top-notch legal team to defend her. The trial opened in June of 1893, prosecution argued that Lizzie was bitter towards her stepmother and just wanted access to her father's money. But the evidence they presented was almost entirely circumstantial. One of their main witnesses was a friend of Lizzie's who said she saw her burning a dress a day after her father's funeral. And why else would someone burn a dress but to hide bloodstains, am I right? Or you could look on it on the other side of things, maybe like superstition. Mm. She didn't want the bad vibes of the funeral with her dress, and she burned it. That's true. You know? But 1800s wasn't a time of like good vibes only kind of living and thinking, I feel. Yeah, but like luck and like stuff like that. But they loved a funeral tradition. Mm, So I almost feel like that would go against like... You don't burn the clothes you're wearing to a funeral. I feel like that would be like... That's true. But Lizzie was a different kind of character. How different is what we're asking. That is the thing. <laughs> That's the question, the eternal question. Women's groups rallied behind Lizzie. Her supporters said that because women, as non-voters, could not serve on a jury, she would not be judged by a jury of her peers. And they are absolutely point, correct. Point. Yeah, point to you. Her family doctor testified that he had sedated Lizzie with morphine following the murder, which definitely could explain her inability to communicate clearly to police. Okay. Absolutely, it could. After a little over an hour of jury deliberation, they came back with a not guilty verdict. But Lizzie's reputation had essentially been destroyed by this process. Oh, yeah. She was shunned by her church and harassed by society who had followed the highly public trial. She died in 1927. 
I know. And how sad is that if she didn't do it? Because obviously, you know, nobody's really sold either way. But if she didn't, she just spent the rest of her life being treated like she did. So Exactly. And like kids used to go to Maplecroft, her new home, yes. which still stands. And you can like go there. But people would like stand out there and sing while she lived in it. Yeah. And would sing that like Lizzie Borden had an axe, gave her father 40 wax, all that, which is which is also an inaccurate song. It's really annoying. Yeah, the whole thing Why is 40? I don't up. know. But imagine if you didn't do it and your parents just got killed in your home and you found them. And you And now kids that. are singing that you mur- like hacked them to death with an axe. Yeah. Like, whoa. What? Like, that's bad news bears. Layers of trauma. Lots of layers of trauma. So... I don't know. That one's always been a... I I can see both sides on that one really clearly. That's how I feel. Yeah. One. And that brings us to number one on our countdown of the top 10 most astonishing acquittals. Who else but O.J. Simpson? Ah. O.J. Simpson was a Heisman Trophy-winning football player and TV personality. But then he was accused of murdering his ex-wife and her friend. The evidence against O.J. seemed to point to a slam dunk for the prosecution. Until the shocking acquittal was announced. O.J. and Nicole Brown were married from 1985 until 1992 when Nicole filed for divorce. On the night of June 12, 1994, Nicole and her friend Ronald Goldman were fatally stabbed outside of Nicole's condo in Los Angeles. O.J. was in L.A. for part of the night, and police interviewed him after the murder. On June 17th, O.J. was ordered to surrender to police. He took off in a white Bronco truck instead and led police on a car chase that shut down LA highways and was broadcast across the country. He eventually surrendered at his home. OJ was arrested but pled not guilty to the double murder. The trial, which went on for 252 days, began in 1995. The prosecution's case against OJ was significant, starting with his lack of an alibi during the murders. On that night, a driver had been sent to take OJ to the airport. He arrived at OJ's house and spent 25 minutes trying to get in touch with him unsuccessfully. Then the driver saw a man in dark clothing walking quickly up the drive of the estate. A few minutes after that, OJ spoke to the driver and led him through the gate. A single black leather glove was found at the scene of the crime. A matching glove with blood on it from Simpson, Nicole, and Ronald was found at OJ's estate. Nicole's blood was also found on a pair of socks at OJ's home. OJ's defense team painted a picture of the police officers and investigators as racist and immoral. They pointed to alleged racism by the detective and played a tape of him making racist comments. They also suggested that investigators could have planted the matching glove and the bloody sock at OJ's estate, which is not wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's not completely (laughs) unthinkable. It's not. Their most talked about move was when they had OJ try on gloves found at the murder scene. They were too small for his hands. This led to the famous line by OJ's lawyer, Johnny Cochran, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. That always bothered me because I'm like, who says that murderous gloves have to fit? Yeah, that's you can do things with gloves that are too small. You very much could. And it would even make more sense because then you would think later on like, oh, guess what? Those aren't even going to fit me later. So I always thought that was weird. It is. 
On October 3, 1995, O.J. was acquitted of murder charges, but that wasn't the end of his legal troubles. A couple years later, he was tried in civil court and found liable for wrongful death in the murder of both Nicole and Ronald. He was ordered to pay $33.5 million in damages to their families. In 2008, Simpson was sentenced to up to 33 years in prison after being found guilty of a failed armed robbery and kidnapping. He was released on parole in 2017. I don't remember any of the OJ trial because I wasn't alive for it, but obviously I know all about it because it's one of the most infamous trials in American history. Of course. And I was in fourth grade. And strangely enough, I remember my fourth grade teacher wheeling in the big TV just to uh, have us all see the verdict. And we didn't watch any of the trial, obviously. We weren't, like, learning about, like, what happened to the crime scene or anything. I do remember that TV being wheeled in. I remember it being red. And I remember all of us just being like, okay. You're like, cool. Does anybody have a blue crayon? Yeah, I was like, "Um, my juice box needs refilling. Like, I was like, (laughs) I don't know what this is. But I remembered that being a thing. And I remember it being on in our house all the time. Like, I remember Mm. the Kato Kalen of it all. Who doesn't? Who doesn't? doesn't So I remember remember all of it. Yeah, I could see and, that. But I, I was a little young to understand what was going on. I also remember the Bronco chase. Like, that was a oh, big yeah. thing. Uh, I Like, I remember seeing that, like, happening when it happened. That's so funny. But I was, it's funny to think of it in, like, a way that I was way too young to understand what was really going on. But yeah. now I look back and I'm like, oh, damn. I was, like, watching history occur right there. You really were. Yeah, it was crazy. I mean, I do agree with the podcast research gods. That is 100% number one. Like, everybody knows that trial. But I don't know. I feel like three, two, and one, or honestly, really even just three and one could be tied for number one. To me, Casey Anthony is number one without a doubt. Yeah, like we were saying. OJ Simpson is number two. Yeah. To me. Yeah. Personally. That's just my personal opinion. I get that. But Casey Anthony is number one because... With O.J. Simpson, one, I was, at the time, I was young, so I didn't have that, like, shock factor of, like, is this right or is this wrong kind Mm -hmm. of thing. Looking into it later, you can definitely draw your own conclusions from that. But Casey Anthony, I was old enough to know what was going on, and I remember being livid. My mind is, my mind's still blown by that. I still 100% believe that that was the most botched thing I've ever seen. Because that's her baby. Yeah. Like, she had to actively decide to have that child and then actively decide to end that child's life. Yeah. And it's like, Kaylee deserves justice and she didn't get it. And that's what's really, that's what's really astonishing about that one. Very much so. But otherwise, great job. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another great episode. Remember to follow Crime Countdown on Spotify to get a brand new episode delivered every week. You can find all episodes of Crime Countdown and all other podcast shows for free on Spotify. And if you like this show, follow at Parcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Parcast Network on Twitter. And if you like us, which I hope you do because you made it this far all the way to the end of the countdown, you can listen to Morbid anywhere you listen to podcasts. Or you can follow us on Twitter at A Morbid Podcast or on Instagram at Morbid Podcast. We hope you keep it weird until Monday. Crime Countdown is executive produced by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It was created by Max Cutler. 
Sound design by Kristen Acevedo, with associate sound design by Jamie Ryan. Fact-checking by Lori Siegel. Research by Jay Cahio. It's produced by John Cohen, Kristen Acevedo, Gemma Waters, Jonathan Ratliff, and Tracy Levy. It's associate produced by Gitu Mera, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro. We're your hosts, Elena Urquhart and Ash Kelly. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa. Exciting news. Parcast's first book, Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them, is now available for pre-order at parcast.com slash cults. Thanks to your support, we've compiled years of research, insights, and a catalog of case studies to expose more about these cults and the people behind them than ever before. Details which haven't even been explored in our Cults podcast. Visit parcast.com slash cults to pre-order your copy of Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Joined Them.